Hello, everybody. I uh, decided to mix it up with a little bit of a, a somber O Canada there. Um, that is a, a choir um, accompanied by a piano. Uh, and it's the longest one I could find because I had a lot of speakers to onload here. Um, Dear Point, how's it going? Good to have you. What's that? Said you got to play the national anthem now. I just did. Like the U.S. The Canadian oh, one, but now that we have an American on board, you know, we've got to do it like the hockey yeah. teams. Yeah, yeah, just, I guess that's usually He's like right. one, one, one for each team. I mean, realistically, the Fed's driving the ship here anyway, right? So um, I, uh, I'm just trying to get a couple more speakers on um, the roster here. But how's it going, everybody? Tell me what's going on on the ground. Uh, Jordan, I know you've been, been out and about uh, around the country. Is, uh, is, there, is there a recession out there or, or no? Uh, my travels tell me that it is a recession. It's, uh, it's brewing under the service because everyone seems to be out and having a great time, man. Um, and I'll be honest, the last few weeks, pre-construction demand's been yeah, picking up. Yeah, it's fully canceled. Like, it's nowhere near what it was in January, February. But, uh, I know you guys are seeing it on the resale side, too. Yeah. It's, I, I'm curious to see, like, I guess the question Diesel. is, like, what was the expectations from consumers? Because, like... Most of the pre-construction buyers I talked to anticipated 75 points, and that's what we got. I, I guess I'm curious, how many people thought we wouldn't see one? And if, if that's a lot of people, then obviously we're going to see you know, a huge decline in sentiment once again. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that probably the only place I saw people saying that they felt that rates were going to be cut was on TikTok. And I, don't, I would like to believe that most of the people on TikTok weren't um, – really home buyers before the rate hike yesterday and I, I they certainly are not now if they were planning on seeing rate cuts happen uh, so I, I think we're, we're probably okay in regards to what it's going to do to sentiment I, what i think I, you're kind of seeing happen is you know volume was so low in july and august that like you really feel the amplification of of volume changing into you know i guess from july to august and then even ramping up into the spring here right or sorry into the fall here like yeah we're gonna head into a normal fall market um it's i think it's gonna be you know typical like in line with if you go back to that crea chart and i'll try and post it to put in the nest here but you know volume was was the market was running extremely hot from basically the beginning of covid until a couple of months ago right and I think even if we trade at, at a normal volume, even if we trade a little bit higher than normal volume, it's going to feel low if you look at it year over year, but it's going to feel high when you look at it compared to, to July and August. Because if you look at the data set, I think I posted a couple of charts a few days ago. Um, you know, In the past three years, the only month that was lower than July and August of this year was, was April when the entire country was locked down and you weren't even allowed to do, uh, do showings and stuff. So I think... Anything's, any any change is going to be noticeable. Um, after, the same way it was it was noticeably horrible heading into those two months, right? So, um, dear point, what do you think the impact of this is going to be on? Like, I think we we just kind of stepped into trigger rate territory. Um, ben Rabbit, who's listening along, hopefully Ben can join us as a speaker here. Um, posted some cool charts about what 
the exposure was like in the market. Actually, I don't know if it was, I think it was on his newsletter, which I would recommend everybody subscribe to, but, but uh, I feel like Steve reposted them. Um, that there was like a, a period of time in which um, a lot of those, those trigger rates were being originated, I guess, basically for the entire last year, almost the entire year of 2021. It was about, um, it was about 260 we, billion from Ben's chart. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think 261 billion. Right. So what, like, where are we at now? What's next? What happens here um, to here? I don't know if you want to, you want to jump in and kind of give us a 30,000 feet of, of what it looks like from the macro perspective. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, things are worrisome. Um, I, not Armageddon. Uh, I, I don't want any, anybody to think that, but, um, you know, um, right now, I mean, credit, uh, Canada. I, I think that there's a lot of risk that the market's pricing into to Canada. Um, and I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but um, as, as I mean, it is a bad thing. I'm trying to be a little bit optimistic here because I don't want to sound too pessimistic. But, um, you know, like I, I posted some a couple of days ago uh, from the terminal on Canada's credit default swap on the five year. And I mean, Broadly speaking, Canada, like their credit default swaps don't really trade, but it, it makes Canada look like more of like a Portugal or a Spain than um, a, you know, um, let's say extremely well capitalized nation. But, um, you know, I, I think that how this actually relates back to the real estate sector is, is pretty worrisome. Um, because if you look at the data coming out of Canada compared to the U.S., the U.S. has a pretty strong, like, labor market, right? Canada shed 54,000 jobs. Um, I, I think that if you actually look at labor market expectations uh, within Canada, they're, they're worse than the United States. So I think that that's going to put, obviously, more of a, a, a kind of downward pressure on people's ability to even be able to start to service their debt, right? Like, I mean, if we start to see job losses, not just in not just in the um and like you know blue collar jobs but even white collar jobs you know i know a lot of financial institutions um cut their new uh their intern class by about 50 percent um that's that's absolutely massive um so so things like that are are kind of showing it's, it's not just blue collar jobs that are getting affected it's people within the fire you know financial um industries and, and real estate sector right um Hence the word the fire sector, right? So I mean, it's I, I think that this is going to have implications way beyond what the, the Bank of Canada is expecting, um, and obviously, I mean that that puts a lot of pressure on on an economy that's uh, citizens are extremely indebted. Yeah, fair enough. It is interesting, especially you know when pressed. I, I think like there was the the um, interview. I guess Pierre Poliver was interviewing um, Tiff Macklem and, and asking about the rate sensitivity of the average Canadian household, and this was like a couple of years ago, right? And and, um, and Tiff, you know, kept saying, "Oh, the, the you know the, the thing that's going to prevent people from paying their mortgages is is if they lose jobs, right?" And then consistently over the last couple of years, you know, kept using employment, the strength of employment as a statistic. So obviously they are relying on that strength as as one of the the, the big I, I think indicators of whether or not they still have runway to to hike. 
Um, but the part that I found interesting, and I'll try and post this as well, but somebody posted on Twitter, and I'm not really exactly sure where like the data or the theory comes from, but this roadmap of how the economy responds to, to rate hikes. Um, and it starts with housing and then basically goes through, the acronym is HOPE, I believe, but it, it basically goes through and employment is sort of the last area of the economy to be impacted. So I, I think it's kind of funny that, you know, what, it, it seems that they're using almost a, a lagging indicator to um, you know, to make decisions on, on something that should be made in foresight, right? Um, Peter, I think you had your hand up here and then uh, we'll get to Jordan. Go ahead. Yeah, so like on a boots on the ground perspective, I've received a couple letters from uh, who have these static, uh, static variables are planning on handling it. And a uh, person from what I've seen is, I don't think TD is even going to do anything on even with, and publicly what I've seen from RBC is, you know, your best option is to increase your monthly payment by like 10%. Although, and Ben knows this too, that there was, I guess, internal talks of like that $2 on the principal mark, just a minimal payment. So uh, f from what I can tell, it's just the people are going to get killed on renewals when they, when they come up and they're at a 50-year amortization. So, you know, I, unless we see something like Deer was saying of massive loss of employment and people actually can't make the payments, that's a different story. But uh, right. in terms of... In terms of adjustment on the payment, I think I think the banks aren't going to do anything. And is there any indication that like we might see a race to the exit as like sentiment starts to erode and people are, are maybe like we're realizing financial stress and we're also seeing I think like Bank of Canada data you know alluded to some of the the investors who were causing this exuberance was a lot of these people levering up and buying a second home, right? So like ne not necessarily experienced investors, people who. You know, we're going to try and have that Canadian dream of being a, a landlord and, and having a HELOC on your house or whatever it was. Like, are, they're going to, I would assume, try and dump rather than figure this out in five years. Or, like, I, I'm just, I'm trying to get an understanding for whether or not that, like, now that we're actually seeing a degree of financial stress, whether or not it actually causes people to, I, to sell, right? Like, do we see this materialize in supply? I, th I think those are that you know, over-levered or, or levered up on HELOCs are, are going to be in trouble. The ones that took out, like, I can tell you, I just sold a place and the buyer is basically 100% like levered up using using a, a HELOC as a, as a down payment. And thank God it's not my client, but whatever, I, I'm on the other side. So I'm just hoping the deal closes. But, you know, what's a HELOC right now? Almost 6%, 5, 5, yeah. 5, give or take. I'm like, those people are in trouble because, you know, the, the banks aren't saving you on a cash flow basis. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I, I'm personally seeing it happen. Like I'm in a, I, I sold one of my properties in, uh, in f end of February, early March, renegotiated it, uh, down like a hundred K, which is like about 10% haircut. Um, and now it's been delayed. It was supposed to close several times in August and that's been delayed. Uh, final closing is the 13th um, of this month. So I, I will keep everybody posted on that. But that was literally uh, two deals under appraised, right? The, the deal that the that the buyer of my property, uh, their backup, let's call it, right? The house that they were selling under appraised by 100K and then theirs under appraised by only 30K after the haircut. So we, we made an effort to make it work, right? I think the market's trying here. Um, yeah, uh, Jordan, did you want to jump in here? Then we'll get to Gina, and then Ben. I noticed you unmuted. I don't know if you want to want to jump in too. Yeah, no, it's uh, just 
commenting on the strategy. It's funny, like perfect timing. Um, I got an email uh, a couple hours ago from somebody who I haven't, I have never worked with before, but she just, I guess, watched my videos and she says, Hey, look, I bought a thousand square foot unit in December, 2021, took possession January this year, rented it out for 3,200. I knew it wouldn't cash flow, but with prices rising, it made sense. Now with interest rates having gone up so fast, I'm suffering any advice. Um, so I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a supply side narrative for how many people have done something like this and, you know, budgeted for 500 bucks negative cash flow or whatever. And it's very quickly becoming a thousand or more. Um, and then the other thing I'm dealing with right now is a ton. And I mean, a, uh, like a, like a ton of people and realtors reaching out to me saying like, Hey, like I have this pre-construction unit that I don't want to close on or can't afford to close on because of the current interest rate environment. Um, I know you have an email list. Like, can you send, can you promote this on me or my client's behalf? Like, I can't move this thing for the life of me. We're already, you know, we're already at the point where we're pricing in literally the original purchase price in 2019, 2020 plus 5% for, for co-op fee. Like, like, I, I don't know what else to do. Like, can you send this out to your email list? So there's a ton of stress in the assignment market. And it's something I've been kind of watching over the past few months. Like I, I do, I will say this much. I do have a huge list of clients who specifically said to me, like, can you watch for distressed assignment sales and send them to me as they come? Because we'd like to pounce on some. Um, but a lot of those people are, are, are kind of on, on the same page as me. Like it's going to get worse before it gets better. So let's wait for some people who are listing at prices, you know, where they're actually losing money after co-op. So there's a lot of stress in the assignment market for sure. Are we seeing anything move with like uh, that are, that are negative yet after, after co-op? Um, I would bet you some have, I just haven't seen it in the condo space, but I would, I would bet for sure in the detached space it's happened for sure. Very, very interesting. I've seen a couple um, posted. I've seen a couple posted, but nothing closed yet that are actually listed below. Wow, very interesting. I, I personally think that that's probably the biggest uh, risk factor in the market right now is is this. And and you know, um, Mark, who's who's joined us here, has talked a lot about it as well. Um, that there's a lot of people out there who were purchasing with prices going up without the intention to close. And I think that you know, if you think about the way that capital stacks are structured, like there's a lot of risk that when those deals are supposed to close, they aren't able to. And that, I think that there's a ripple effect of that. Um, Gina, you've had your hand up here. Do you want to, do you want to jump in and then maybe we can actually talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, that was really interesting. What Jordan said, I've had a couple people reach out to me, not, you know, not people that I've sold or anything like that, but that they're basically at a point where they, after yesterday's rate um, increase, they will be really having a hard time uh, paying the mortgage. And it's really hard as an agent to be able to, I guess, you know, guide them through that. It, it, like, what do you say? It's, it's, it's a really difficult position to be in. And I just, before the space started, there was uh, somebody posted on, um, on Twitter, a credit martyr, he posted that there was a report on the country's cost of living crisis, and it revealed that 4% of Canadians say they've fallen behind on their housing payments. Um, it's a finder survey. I'm trying to find the link, but I thought that was very interesting. I don't know what the normal, you know, quote unquote, unquote amount is, but I'm wondering what the effects of yesterday's rate hike will have to those people and what kind of percentage we will see increase, if any. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a, 
it is it's becoming almost like like you, i can i can feel that it's it's like a stressful thing to 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 think about and talk about how to advise people who are probably in those situations and it's it's becoming that way it's almost like this is probably one of the more more somber conversations i feel like we've had in, in regards to because it's just like this is where it's kind of starts to actually get ugly right before it was kind of a little bit more theoretical um dear you got your hand up here and then i want to uh want to maybe get to uh to stephanie and ben after after that you, you know what i think is the uh I, I I know this is bad, but what I, what I think is the most fucked about this entire situation is because rates are rising, that means starts are going to fall, right? So for each 1% increase in mortgage rates, like if you are, or interest rates, sorry, if you run like a linear regression, you have a 4% decrease in housing starts, right? And so... I mean, you already have a, a city where supply is constrained. And to some extent, this is just going to s- constrain supply even more. So, I mean, you know, just in, in basic theory, you're going to have uh, a leftward shift, a further leftward shift in aggregate supply, which just means like even if demand comes down, it's probably not going to balance out a whole lot at a lower price level just because now you're going to have this whole supply issue uh, getting choked off because nobody's going to, you know, start new housing projects um, just because of like, you know, like present discount value calculations, right? Like obviously if you are going to do a 30-year project of building like let's say condominiums or multifamily, that's no longer as attractive at, you know, five or, or, or 600 basis points as it was when you could have gotten approved at 200 basis points, right? It, I mean, it makes a whole hell of a lot of a difference. So, you know, I, I, I think even to some extent, I don't think that this is really going to have a whole, like in places at least like Toronto and Vancouver, I, I don't think that this is really going to have a, a whole lot of, of, of influence on, on bringing down prices in aggregate. Yeah, I guess the challenge becomes in that respect that like what, in order for prices to stop moving down at a certain point, I, w- I would assume that that means that volume needs to almost like really, really taper off. Um, and and I wonder if that's sort of like, are we in for almost like a winter in the real estate market? Like I think I had calculated that commissions dropped from, like they basically dropped 50%. So the amount of basically earnings that realtors were able to make on the Toronto Real Estate Board in, in February was like $600 million. And by July, it was below $300 million. Um, that's based on the reduction in price and the reduction in volume, right? Um, like at a certain point, I think, and, and maybe Ben can chime in on this a little bit as well. Like this is residential investment materializing in in a big portion of GDP and like, does it start to trickle into like, is this what actually is going to lead the charge in, in us heading into a, a relatively shitty recession in Canada? Um, ben, did you want to jump in here at all? Or um, I know Stephanie's been covering the rate hikes a lot um, actually in Ottawa and I've been reading a lot of the, the articles. So be happy to hear from either of you if, if you want to um, chime in. Well, actually it's, so it's Ben here, Dan, can you hear me? All right. Yeah, I can. Okay. I, I'd love to pull that thread a little more that Jordan raised. I thought it was interesting. I, I noticed you got Mark on here as well. I'd love to throw the ball to him and him up Jordan's comments around just kind of what he's seeing. Time, um, Mark, if you're if you're able, I'd love to just get some. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. I'm sorry you were cutting in and out there during your question. You'd love to hear my opinions on what I missed that. 
Sorry, guys. I got crappy connection. I don't know if he's if we lost. Sorry, him, but sorry. Yeah, it's yeah, it's all good, Ben. Uh, I, I can just I can I can weigh in if I am assuming that you're. Yeah. So uh, just with regards to what you guys were talking about, first off, I have had three files that have crossed my desk where agreements have been consummated, not closed yet, but consummated, uh, where uh, the price is under what was paid when you factor in commission. Um, two of those were in Mississauga. Uh, one of them was in Pickering. Uh, so for the record, it's starting and uh, we have seen it. Now, in fairness, I think that one of those particular assignments was vastly undersold and if it, it, was, it was a particular aspect of, of the person who was selling, but no doubt the other two uh, were, were real. Um, the assignment market is, um, a lot of people are coming to me now and they're revealing what I already knew to be the case, which is that they purchased with no real hope of closing, no matter how much we actually told them, don't do this. Um, and we have a significant problem now um, where people are speaking, I think, first to their lawyers because they realize the problems are around the corner and they're sussing out ideas. Um, I can tell you that in conjunction with the assignment market, there is a new market forming in the um, shape of negotiations with builders to get out a contract straight out. There are many people who have tried to assign who have been unsuccessful and are now turning to lawyers trying to negotiate out of their contracts. I can speak to two specific examples in the past month where clients have walked away from thirty or forty thousand dollars. Usually it's not when they're fully in, but usually it's one or two deposits in. Uh, and they've just upped and walked away and the builders have allowed it so long as they keep the deposits. Um, we are seeing more and more of those. And I think that that, even though that's not the assignment space, it's assignment adjacent, because if these people could assign, they would. The reason that they're taking the actions they're taking is because they've been unsuccessful in that assignment market. So in conjunction with people who are selling below market, we're also seeing people who are upping and walking away through the signing a mutual release with builders. And that is a new facet that I haven't encountered for the past five years or so in my daily practice. Um, so what I would say is, um, sky's not falling. I don't mean to make it look like it's disaster out there, but I think the, what's happening is everyone is biding their time, feeling incredibly uneasy. The amount of people who want to get out of their positions and effectively deleverage um, are vast. Um, many people are realizing that they can't do it and are opting to hold on because, frankly, they aren't experiencing the cash flow hit really until the closing takes place. But um, I think that based on the conversations I have on a daily basis, uh, there is trepidation out there and there is a deluge of people who are preparing for what they may need to do and the losses they may need to take if this continues and certainly rising interest rates does not help that facet. Appreciate the insight, Mark. Um, in your experience, like our... Are, is there any stress on, on the development side of things like in such that the capital costs that increases that we're seeing are impacting people, you know, holding massive land loans, construction financing, et cetera? Um, I mean, these aren't really, it's not like detached yeah. where you can kind of just like stop building, right? Yeah, I can't really speak to that because that's not really my area. I'm hearing rumors that certainly that's the case, but I will speak to the anecdotal evidence that I have based on where I sit in the market, which is, to be very clear, purely residential. I will tell you that one of the features that we are now experiencing is the hell of builders demanding firm approvals 
in ways that they never have in the past. So as people are aware, when you purchase new construction, you often need to provide uh, bank approvals. Five years ago, that was a joke. Five years ago, your uncle could have written you a letter saying, I really think this guy's good for it. And, you know, the builders would have said, oh, boy, that's great. Then it went to mortgage brokers and, you know, like a mortgage broker letter sufficed. Then it was, all right, a pre-approval from a bank. Now we're seeing things like in the Tridels where they're demanding not a pre-approval, but, well, they're, they're demanding a rate hold for like four years. And they're, they're making increasing demands um, and, and, and becoming more and more meticulous in these demands. Now, that plays into your question directly. Because the reason that they're making these demands is because their lenders in turn are worried about the stability of their client base. Um, so it is the people who are extending the construction financing who are putting pressure on the developers who are in turn putting pressure on the people, uh, on, on the end user. And it's for that reason that we are now experiencing the hellish vortex of mortgage pre-approval, which so many lawyers are now trying to navigate their clients through. That's really the only experience what? I have where I can speak to it. In, do you know how much like of a rule the um, insurance on deposits, like sort of the Terion and Westmount guarantee program, like actually creates a, a risk protection for like, you know, I mean, if, if what in an absolute worst case scenario, which I don't really necessarily foresee happening, um, if like 80 plus percent of, of people failed to close on a project, perhaps it had oversold and, and the market didn't grow into its prices or whatever. And, and it what you know, they could, they just couldn't close because um, the valuations weren't working out. Right. Um, is like Westmount is the Westmount guarantee system strong enough, I suppose, to support um, projects that are, are in that, in that position. Well, let's keep in mind that, uh, let's let's run through that scenario. It's an interesting question, but let's run through that scenario. And I know this isn't talking about interest rates, so I'll be quick. Um, in the event that that was the case where people were walking away, what you effectively have done is you have builders that can then basically say, thank you very much. You've defaulted on your agreement. The 20% you've put down, we are now going to seize, and thus we can sell this product legally for 80% of market value. And so really, in order for Terion and others to really ex start experiencing uh, significant losses with builders going belly up, they first have to run through the existing sunk cost of the deposits, which isn't likely to happen. I, I don't think that that's where we are, particularly given the previous speaker. I'm sorry, I didn't see who said it. I thought it was a very astute point where they were mentioning that, um, you know, aggregate prices aren't likely to fall because of the supply demand issues and the lack of uh, supply that continues to exhibit itself as people walk away from projects or from uh, non-built projects. So I, I hope that answered your question. Um, again, I think I'm talking a bit out of turn, guys. There's a very knowledgeable customer base here, and I'm, I'm a lowly yeah. residential real estate lawyer, and I'm trying to answer questions that have to do with systemic risk, and it's not my ballywick. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, like, I mean, Ben uh, asked, you to specifically opine on it because it is from my opinion like a, an important factor in in what's going on in the market and, and it could be one of the, the largest areas of potential risk right like i don't know if there is any necessarily any degree of systemic risk in the canadian market but i i think that it, you know there's there's a high de higher degree of risk in that market especially just given you know the evidence that that a lot of people are saying that there's a lot of purchasers out there with contracts there's a lot of options contracts sitting around with people who have no intention to close, right? And, and to me, that's, I don't, that's, that's pretty material, right? I, I, will, I will, I agree with you. 
uh, I think the material systemic risk that I'm seeing in my office is the one that I've identified several months ago. HELOCs are disappearing. HELOCs are the most expensive credit product on the market that most Canadians currently have available. Um, the notion that we've always been taught that people are like have $200 in their bank accounts and they're like, you know, one paycheck away from bankruptcy. Uh, that has not so much been true over the past couple of years because with expanding real estate values, people always had access to a HELOC. But that is now more true than ever because not only do we have that same dynamic at work where the HELOC is no longer available, but we also have the additional pressure of what people have borrowed over the course of years at heightened interest rates. And as a result, what we're seeing and what I'm worried about, particularly as these interest rates continue to rise, uh, is that people have lived beyond their means for a long time. They have done so with the assistance of their houses. And without that assistance, without that crush, um, how they actually can go about their everyday life and afford uh, without massive deleveraging or sales, uh, fire sales. Uh, I don't know how the average Canadian is going to be able to do that. What I see in my office every day are people who are in debt up to their eyeballs. Um, and they may not yeah, have realized yeah. it because they felt wealthy, but they mm -hmm. work. And Scotiabank, Scotiabank played right into that with you're richer than you think. You can go fuck yourself, Scotiabank. That was the worst thing ever. I mean, from their bottom line, I guess it would make sense. But from the perspective of uh, Canadians who should have been trained to save and understand their true nature of their finances, it did a massive disservice. And I think we're going to pay the price for that going forward. Awesome. I appreciate the insight, Mark. Um, what, before we move on from the development space, I might actually um, just get Jeremiah to chime in here. Um, Jeremiah, are we seeing anything in regards to anything alarmish happening with the development space that, like, is, are, are developers in general aware of the trend that we're talking about um, happening that, that Jordan and Mark are discussing, where there's a, a high degree of individuals purchasing without intent to close? Is there fear around this? Is it really just like I know most of the individuals that I've spoken with, it, it, you know, the, the, the fear is that unit sales obviously are not, are not what they used to be. And so launches are a little bit different. But beyond that, is there like, can you give us maybe at 30,000 feet of what's happening in, in the development space and how, how they're responding to the rate hiking environment? And then we'll, we'll sort of pivot maybe more back to the macro, um, try and get Stephanie in here and, and Kevin and, and Deer as well. Um, so Jeremiah, the floor is yours. Um, yeah, it's a valid question. We, we get this question quite a bit. From what I've seen, there's not a lot of risk in this space so far um, with most of the builders that you would know. Where I've seen quite a bit of issues is more surrounding, call it developers who have started out in the last five years. You know, they've gotten their carry on and say the last five years and they've started to buy projects. You know, this this was a pretty popular choice for a lot of new entrants into the space. And we're getting asked quite a bit to value land within place sales um, because the developers are saying we're worried about what happens when we have to close on this land. We're also worried about the construction costs. In other words, like it's, it's a lot of inexperienced um, builder developers who have either come from the custom home space the renovation space, or um, we see a lot of not foreign developers, but you know they're here. They have family money from other countries, uh, and they're used to getting approvals a lot easier and building a lot easier in other countries. Uh, but this is mostly projects in I would call the uh, like twenty-five to 
like 300 unit space. There's, you know, the larger projects, you don't see this a lot and you'll probably see it in the news a lot more. Um, but, and, and I would say it's an overwhelming amount of builder developers doing stacked townhouse projects. Weirdly, this type of product is very difficult to price, very difficult to build. I know like, for example, you know, a very large builder who you would all know the name of has told me specifically, we'll never build this stuff again. Um, so I know, I know exactly who that is. It's hilarious. The, the trades don't want to do it apparently. Yeah, they, they don't want to do it. And the, the funny part is, is I actually bought one of these projects and the developer who I know quite well, you know, he said, we, we love this project. People love to live in it, but it's very hard to build and it's hard to price. So, it, but anyways, I, I digress. Like it, it, just to talk about what you're asking about, you know, are people going to have some problems closing? We haven't seen that yet um, because it, mostly what I'm seeing so far is there's, I don't know if you want to call it either denial or the thought that at least having product in certain good areas is never going to have, you know, more than a 20, 30% uh, correction. So why not hold on to it? And of course, in Canada, we have much different rules than the US where <laughs> you see a lot of these issues. Like, you know, my cousin used to work for Bank of America on their distressed loan side, and he had to take over entire towers in downtown Chicago, where um, they had an entire tower of people not close on it and on condo projects they had to convert it to rental just to be able to deal with the construction loan. So I just don't think we'll see that here um, yet. Um, is it possible it'll happen to secondary markets where you saw some of the massive run-ups where you see like Durham townhouses selling for 1.4, you know, worth like eight, 900 now. I mean, it's possible, but uh, so far I haven't seen anything in the development space. Awesome. Thanks, Jeremiah. I appreciate it. Um, want to circle back here more specifically to the Bank of Canada rate announcement. Um, Stephanie, I know you were covering a lot of this prior to like and leading up to did quite a few good articles on, on sort of what, um, you know, what to watch for and what, what to, to think about after the announcement. Um, did you want to just share your thoughts on, on what this whole thing means for us here in Canada? For sure, yeah, and thanks for uh, inviting me. Um, I don't have any, uh, don't have too many uh, mortgage-focused observations, so I'll make my comments quick. Uh, I know the real estate uh, mortgage professionals here have much uh, richer commentary on that front, but uh, there were a few details that kind of stood out to me as being interesting on the macroeconomic and real estate front. So, seeing that seventy-five basis point hike, it is the the Bank of Canada told me it was the highest uh, it's been since April two thousand and eight, when the uh, bank cut from three point five percent to. 3% uh, during the global financial crisis. Uh, and this reading kind of broke above the theoretical neutral range of about 2 or 3%, um, uh, a range that should neither hurt nor hinder, sorry, hurt or grow the economy. But uh, we kind of saw that absent from the statement and speech we saw today from Senior Deputy Governor uh, Carolyn Rogers. Uh, some economists are saying it's not as relevant anymore, seeing that we're, we've got unique headwinds and tailwinds that uh, makes us far from a usual situation. Um, and also notably absent from the statement in the speech was uh, this uh, the hope for a soft economic landing. Um, on the mortgage front, I think one thing that's kind of interesting is, and we might not uh, focus on as much or acknowledge it enough is uh, how much growth in the economy is kind of pulled out as Canadians put more of their income into mortgage payments as opposed to 
buying goods and services. So uh, kind of looking at how that will affect growth as well. Um, one thing that uh, I was looking at today in particular was that uh, not only have rising rates obviously taking demand uh, of the mortgage market, putting more buyers on the sidelines, but it's also prompting uh, organizations like Shred to advocate loosening the uh, mortgage underwriting standards and uh, OSPI dug in its heels today saying these mortgage underwriting uh, guidelines won't change anytime soon. And if we have time, I'd be interested to hear what others in the real estate mortgage space uh, think of some of these lobbying efforts here. It was kind of an interesting dynamic play out. Uh, so Canada yeah. is more sensitive to these rate hikes compared to G7 peers because of the amount of household debt that we have. Uh, case in point, that Equifax survey that uh, came out uh, just showing um, how much uh, credit card debt and mortgage debt uh, Canadians are shouldering lately. But uh, it is kind of startling, uh, or maybe not a surprise to many people here, uh, how much uh, our economy depends on housing. So lots of, lots of dynamics at play for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Peter, did you want to jump in on that one? I saw your hand go up. Um, and I, I can. Um, I, I don't I can want to. Uh, sorry, Dan, I don't want to diverge, but. Uh, yeah, no, go ahead. Stephanie, Stephanie did mention about uh, on Treb's uh, status or their opinion on. Uh, yeah, no, no, she. Writing. Yeah, for sure. She asked. So, yeah, let's jump in on that one quickly. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't re normally side with Treb, but um, if. And I don't know exactly what their last statement was, but based on what they wrote in their market watch report on, um, on basically only on renewals when it comes down to the stress test and potentially extending amortizations, but mostly on the stress test, uh, removing it on renewals. Um, I'm sort of on board with them. Uh, you know, it, it should be fair. Oh, I think it's going to be necessary, right? <laughs> like, yeah, well, I, don't know if, I, I, I think I yeah. think it, I, I just think to make it a fair competitive market, right? At this point, your your current lender has you hamstrung, and they can basically if you if you don't pass the stress test, then you know you're sort of stuck with them at whatever rate they want, you know. So like opening yourself up to a more competitive market, I'm sort of on board with them only on renewals, not on refinancing, not on originations, and definitely not on adding any money to your mortgage. Um, you know, the, the idea of adding or extending amortizations to people, all, again, only on renewals, potentially could be an option if, if it's allowed. I don't, I think there's some rules against it, Ron was saying, but like I said, I'm, I'm only on board with it strictly on renewals when it comes up to, to maturity. Yeah, I think my perspective on that is like, I feel like we're still a little bit early for what I would call inflationary policy. Like, and I, I just think that like, I would, I fully anticipate that we're going to see a policy response to try and floor the market at a certain point. I just, I feel like it still needs to bleed a little bit before they throw a bandaid on it. And, and I, I, I think it's going to happen. We'll likely see it next year. Um, I, I, but like, you know, when you talk about the stress test needing to be removed for a lot of those mortgages, I think those are all the mortgages that we were seeing from last year. Right. So, you know, if you were to assume that the majority of those are five year term, right. Um, the, you know, the actual necessity of that policy being in place isn't going to happen for a while. So I think we have a little bit of lead time. I, I and I could be wrong here, but that, that's sort of my, my take on it. I, I know. I agree. I just don't, I, I don't think it would would be inflationary if we're just looking at people who may be, may be trapped on their monthly. On renewal only, like, you're right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. but I don't, I don't know if they would do it renewal only. Like, I feel like, yeah. You think if they just do it, they're just going to remove it altogether? 
I don't know. I mean, yeah, well, I, I, I'm not again, sure. The, but the, I, the only reason I, I, I state only, strictly only on renewal is, again, for that the, the potential of an inflationary, um, you know, spark of this market again, which we're trying to avoid, right? Right. Yeah. I think it's just going to become necessity. Like, I, I imagine you'll see lenders trying to figure out a way to do it on a one-off basis anyway, because like there's going to be a lot of renewal files that will demand that. Right. Daryl, you got your hand up. You want to jump in here? I'm just wondering what you guys think about um, whether or not we're going to start to see more like vendor take back mortgages, not only from developers to make sure that people close, but maybe even in private sales. Uh, to make sure that the buyer gets the price that they want and that the deal still goes through and maybe to hopefully help the buyer weather the storm until things come down. And then just another kind of question as uh, uh, attached to that is, are we going to start to see uh, private lenders jumping into the market even harder than they have in the last few years and do 40, 50 year AMs and offer interest only loans. I feel like privates are already like pretty well IO anyway, right? I don't like think interest only. Like, I was talking, yeah, I was talking with Sanch today and I, I like, uh, for the most part, he was saying like, there's not. That's drying like, up still. The, the demand is still there for, for the funds. It's like, uh, the, the problem is there's not enough of those funds to, to, to meet the demand. Mm -hmm. There's not enough of that money out there. But to the point on vendor takebacks, again, anecdotal, but I've received two emails today from homes that were on the market earlier this year saying the seller is willing to take, we're going back on the market and seller is willing to take a, a VTB. I, I can really interesting actually like that, and that that was kind of popularized in the 90s too go ahead Mark, jump in yeah I can speak to the VTB craze because I that that's that's hit my office in a significant way one thing that's different than the 90s is that almost all major lenders do not allow lawyers to place secondary financing um, over and above their mortgage um, and as a result you really have to go to a B lender or you have to go private for the VTVs to work having said that Generally, these circumstances are such that uh, you are dealing in that space. And I have, I will tell you, gone from doing maybe one VTB in five years to doing and engineering maybe five or six of them over the past two or three months. Uh, it, is a new, it is a new facet of the market for sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess necessity is a mother of invention, right? Go ahead, Joe. Uh, what about interest-only type loans? Yeah, two of the VTBs are interest only. Honestly, people, once you're in a VTB territory, it's very easy to negotiate an interest only uh, because really what people are doing is they're saying, look, just give me the balance. Where the VTBs we've arranged are usually for like a difference of the appraisal value, which, you know, on a, on, you know, a million five is, is 100,000 or so. And so what people are doing is they're saying, look, I'll give you one year to get your stuff together. Uh, I don't really care what the interest rate is uh, so long as... Uh, we can build it into the mortgage effectively if you like. Uh, what I want to do is take out all my money and then I want to give you one year to actually recover and get this $100,000 in hand. That's primarily the VTVs that I've seen. It's usually for the appraisal value difference at the present time. Um, having said that, that may change drastically, but, but for now, whether it's interest only, whether it's with interest, it's all really being done to solve the problem of the appraised value. Short term. But wouldn't like Short the lender term. in that 
wouldn't, wouldn't the lender in that scenario need to be basically assume, like treating the, the VTB like owner equity then? Because like no lender's going to, that's functionally a silent second, no? It, like how not, does that, how do you recognize the... It's not, it's not a silent second, it's an actual second. And yeah, that's why... I and the saying. lenders are fine with that now? Like No, no, that's what I was right, saying. Okay, gotcha. I was saying yeah, no, that the banks are not fine with it. And that if you are going gotcha. to do this, you need to be dealing with privates or B lenders. Well, I, I think then that, like the, the bit with the VCB in behind. I got it. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. I think this whole Sorry, thing is all. Well, it's just it's all in in the private lender space. Like this is not going to be in the banks, but private lenders have made a lot of money and been very involved in the market in the last few years, and like their market shares are drying up also. And they have uh, cars to pay for and houses to pay for too, right? So these guys are aren't they going to have to, out of necessity, be creative to to keep the spigots open? Yeah, some of these guys I see who who private lend are not short on cash. I can tell you that right now. So uh, they're no, but they're, they they're, they're out there ready. They're out there ready to to deploy cash. Yeah, that's the next question. Are people really going to start paying cash for things now? Well, I, I can well, tell I mean, that you'd need cash to be in the market. There's, there's, ahead, better, there's better minds than mine on this for this particular point, uh, actually for most points. Uh, but um, I would mention to you that the cost of privates over the past four months or five months has gone up drastically. Um, <clears throat> whereas, first of all, uh, most privates that I'm seeing are not really approaching even 80% any longer. Um, most of them are capping at 75, though you can still find 80 around. I, again, I'm not a mortgage broker, so please take whatever anyone says on this channel who's a mortgage broker uh, above, above my, my experience here. But in, in addition, uh, we're seeing the interest rates uh, fly far higher uh, than the menial interest increases that we're seeing with the Bank of Canada. Uh, we've moved from, in my experience, uh, interest rates that were maybe six months ago at 8%, 9%, uh, to regularly 14%, 15%, uh, with 2% lender fees remaining. Uh, again, there's better people than me to speak about this, but definitely, definitely a change. And this is on second. Yeah, we, don't, we also, we don't have any of the, the better guys on here anyway. I don't know where all my mortgage guys are tonight, but, uh, but I'll, I'll try and, uh, I'll try and summon some. Um, I, uh, yeah, I think that there, you know, there, there was also like a supply and demand mismatch um, in favor of um, of borrowers. I would say before all of this happened, like that, you know, there was not enough deals to bring to the amount of private capital that was in the market um, earlier in the year, let's say. And then as soon as the market dropped and risk became present, you know, like these are your higher risk lenders. Sort of at least what I'm hearing is that they started exiting, and now you have the mismatch to the opposite, right? Where lenders are, are, are sort of the price setters and, and borrowers are the price takers. There's, there's not a ton of capital available, and there's a lot of people in positions that need a, you know, a, a sort of a, a lifeboat lender that, um, that, that there isn't any or there isn't enough out there, right? And so that's yeah. where you're starting to see that, that, that pricing acceleration. Uh, I will mention one thing that I find very interesting about the modern market over the next previous month and next month, perhaps. Dumb money is exiting the market uh, by necessity, uh, by which I mean uh, mom and pop um, lending that was born of HELOCs on their own properties. Those are no longer available, whereas smart money is aggregating in huge pools and waiting by the sidelines and waiting for the drops to take place and desperation to set in. Um, there is a real facet that professionalism is being brought back to the private lending space. Uh, 
because it was the Wild West. Everyone was trying to private lend with their HELOCs. Um, that is no longer the case. Uh, sophistication, patience, uh, all the virtues that made for a good private lender in the previous years, that is now back in style. Great insight, Mark. I really appreciate that. Um, I, I want to try and circle back to more macro side. Um, we've got a couple of qualified folks on here. Um, Kevin, I haven't heard from you yet today. Um, I would just love to get your take on sort of what's happening. You you were a, a showstopper when you showed up the first time on, on the spaces, I think a couple of weeks ago or about a month ago. Um, and, and a lot of people have been eager to hear from you again. So I'd just love to get your take on, on what you feel the the rate hike yesterday means what we can expect uh, to see in the housing market as a result. Uh, thanks, Daniel. This is actually a great panel. I'm learning a lot tonight, so I'm really enjoying being here. And actually, Mark's comments there were a really good segue. Um, I mean, there's a million different directions I could go with this, but uh, what he just said about, you know, people, the big pockets, aggregating funds and waiting for people to be desperate, I think is a very good point. You know, Deerpoint made the point about if interest rates went up 100 basis points, starts to go down by four point something percent. Um, I, I really don't think if there's demand for product, I really don't think there's going to be a problem getting the funding for it. Often, you know, in finance, you see that ideas, good ideas will always be funded. Money isn't the hardest part to come by. And um, I think private equity, um, I think there's a lot of pooled funds that, that see real estate as a long-term investment, um, see the opportunities coming. Um, but having said that, I think that we do have a lot of pain to go through. And uh, I, I think central banks around the world are trying to tell you that. And they've been trying to tell you for a long time. And the fact that, you know, that, that the bank can win another 75 and we're quick to point out that, uh, that we're not done the pain yet. Uh, the ECB today um, being extremely hawkish. Um, you know, I think that, that w what saddens me is I think there's a lot of mom and pops that are going to get hurt in this environment. Um, well, I think the points about optionality in the, the, um, the spec market um, a lot of people are going to lose money and, you know, that's just the natural, the natural result of, uh, too much excess, too much speculation in one particular product, too many people on one side of the boat that doesn't get unwound in a short period of time. Um, you know, we, we talked about last time that I was on about the fact that, uh, every time, um, like for each individual person's uh, circumstances, um, it will dictate what the what what the right path is for them to take in this situation. But I think that ultimately we we still have a lot of unwinding to do in the real estate market in Canada. I mean, if you think about the fact that you know, everybody's crying about the fact that we're off what fifteen percent, I'm just going to throw that out randomly. You guys know better than I do. Well, you know what? What are we back to 2019? <laughs> I mean, honestly, we haven't even come close to to being in a situation where people um, are really feeling the pain that needs to be felt. And I mean that in the spec market. I'm not talking about the fact that the average person um, 
their abilities to pay their mortgages, the things that they're facing with respect to inflation. I mean, there's a million things I can say about all of that, right? But disposable income is going down. Um, people are under stress. Um, people that are leveraged 10 times and whatever else, you know what? I, if you're not taking advantage uh, of the fact, I, I mean, Peter made a really great comment, um, made a great tweet the other day that I commented on, um, you know, about how the cascading effect works and I'll, I'll let him talk about that. But, but, you know, if, if you're leveraged up in this market and you don't realize that you've been given a gift and that it's time to really think about, uh, deleveraging, you know, you really should have been doing it honestly six months or a year ago, but it's, there's still time. And if you're very leveraged, I think you really honestly, need to take a real hard look at what it is that you have and you need to trim that back. So I, I don't know. I'll leave that as an opening comment and I'll, I'll sort of take whatever questions you have. But, uh, but again, I, I'm really impressed with what a lot of people have had to say in here. And I am genuinely um, enjoying the fact that I get to learn a lot of things here too. So thanks for that. Yeah, I appreciate it, Kevin. Um, I, I, I mean, your insights are, are great as always. Um, and likewise, I, I've learned a lot just, uh, just having you on here. Um, I think, you, you know, you, you, you mentioned you've been through a couple of market cycles before. So I, I imagine um, the experience uh, is, is helpful in, in looking at it, uh, you know, with, with, with a clear uh, set of lenses, right? That's actually interesting that you say that because this is very similar to what I saw in 89-90. You know, um, the idea that people, you know, you, you find yourself anchored in this this set of beliefs that markets only go one way, right? And why wouldn't you? If you're under the age of 50, you've never seen a real estate market that's ever gone anything except up, right? And it goes up 10% a year or 8% a year. But, you know, the economy isn't following it, right? And I don't really see the way that we get out of this. And I think that this is also for the Bank of Canada. This is a big issue. Because the disparity between those that have and those that don't has never been greater than it is right now. And, you know, I think they recognize that. I think they know that it needs to be dealt with. We need to take the froth off the top, the excessive rent seeking, right? I, I think a lot of productive capital, you know, I think people miss the point that capital should have a price. And it hasn't had one for the last 12 years. Am I right? 12, 13, yeah, let's call it even 14 years. It hasn't had one for a very long time. Uh, and that leads to excessive speculation and misallocated capital. There will always be misallocated capital, but in this particular case, um, you know, uh, I've seen some things on Twitter. I've seen some, some things that I, I just, that, that sadden me when I look at, you know, where somebody has chosen to build a company and employ I don't know, 10, 20, 30 people. Uh, they've worked extremely hard, created a, a, a solid company that earns money. And then they look at their neighbor and their neighbor bought a house in Vancouver and they've made more money than, than this person has busting their ass to actually create productive, a productive company in our economy. And, and I think that, that that's the stuff that central bankers are looking at that governments are looking at right now and that's the stuff that we have to come to terms with we actually have to find ways to grow the economy and grow it in a different way not just in rent-seeking behavior so anyway 
Yeah, for sure. Actually, somebody who mentions this a lot um, that I listen to is Frances Donald, and, and you know she's been speaking about the, the necessity of diversifying the economy in Canada for you know, for several years, right? And I hope that that's sort of what's on the other side of what what's happening here right now is that we sort of you know uncouple from this dependence that we have on on housing in the Canadian market um, and the, in the Canadian economy. Because, you know, you just like it's, we've proven and this isn't the first time that we've proven that it's just not sustainable, right? Like I think 89 to 90, uh, 94 being you know, the example that you used where, you know, we started to see the, you know, the impact of credit dependence just slowly and very gradually make its way through the market. And I think that there is an important lesson to be learned there that like, you know, everybody seems to think that that things are going to happen very quickly and, and they do, I'd say more quickly than they, than they have historically is at least if you're looking at um you know the stock market like there there's a high degree of reflexivity but i think that you know with real estate being so specifically credit dependent um the cycles take a lot longer to to really materialize um you know given like i think 80 81 it took until i think it was 81 was the peak took until like 84 to to reach the bottom, and then it was eighty-seven where we we recovered to that previous price, and that was that was um, nominal price, not not inflation adjusted. And then right after that, went on another bull run in eighty-nine, which you know is what Kevin mentioned. Um, prices I think peaked around two hundred fifty thousand, fell until nineteen ninety-four, and there was two peaks in nineteen eighty-nine in Q one and Q four, which is really important to note, especially when you're when you're hearing a lot of the bullishness that I'm seeing at least um, heading into the fall market here. Um, and then, yeah, prices fell until 1994, so five years. It took until 2002, so 13 years, to um, to get back to that that nominal price of $250,000 uh, that was set in 1989. And if you inflation adjust that, it took until 2012 to get back to that price. So I think that there's uh, – I, I just, like, I don't understand where – the idea that this is going to, I will, I will argue that, that Toronto will recover faster than it, it fell faster than any other market. It almost had a, a sophistication or a forward lookingness to it. And I would say that on the same token, it will recover faster. It'll bottom faster and it will recover faster. So I would probably watch Toronto to see what's going to happen broadly across the country. But I, I don't think that one could fairly say that, you know, that things are going to, all things are going to happen faster today than they did um, ever before. And, and so that, that's the part that's kind of confused me, right? Like people are already sort of calling the bottom and, and I just, I don't, I don't really necessarily understand where that comes from. Um, Daryl, you got your hand up here. We'll go Daryl um, and then Woes. Uh, go ahead, Daryl. That, that was a good segue because I was going to talk about how fast things move nowadays and and how that definitely needs to be factored in and i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing because there's all kinds of new headwinds coming at us uh because of technology but there's a lot more i think there's a lot more capital out there chasing you know returns um and, and and that money flies around really fast and in like much bigger quantities really fast. And I think that that has to have an effect. I don't know if it's an effect where, where prices go up or the market goes up or if it slams things down faster, but like there's definitely way more factors involved than just like your typical, normal, old school kind of economic theory these days. 
So I don't know how that factors in, but it's got to be pretty major, I think. I think the other element is like the the retailness. Like I I often liken you know Canadian housing to like the Wall Street bets of of you know like that's our that's our retail trade, right? Like we don't necessarily have a super fun stock market, right? Like and so like Canadians lever up and 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 FOMO into houses rather than like AMC or GameStop or whatever it is this week, right? Bed Bath and Beyond, like and so. I, I think like you can examine the impact of retail money the same way that you see it in, um, in, in the U S is happening in housing in Canada. And I think that one of the components of that is, is something that Kevin mentioned, like the disparity that's been created by this, you know, COVID monetary policy and, and the asset driven inflation is, you know, basically creating a haves versus have nots. And, and in Canada, at least, the, the difference between the two is is a house, right? And and so I think young people are feeling that upward mobility has been completely taken away from them and that there's no there's no there's no way to actually achieve wealth other than taking massive risks. Like and it sounds like crazy coming out of my mouth, but like I actually think that that is what's under the big like when you when you hear if you go on wall street bets like you know i've been there for for a decade before like it it blew up uh last year two years ago and it's just like people are are feeling like there's literally no way to to get rich slow anymore i i I would disagree with that personally but i think that they feel that way as a result of like being almost victimized by the economy because of the distribution of of wealth is is so messed up and and i think housing talking you know hearing about people looking for get rich quick schemes in canadian housing is like the same thing from my perspective it's because you know in the u.s people look at at stocks and business investment as as a way that you know that's a differentiating factor between people who have more money than me and in canada it's the same thing right a lot of people are saying oh well you know the rich people own houses here and and then the people who don't are are kind of forgotten about on policy side etc like the past several elections were around homeownership and and the government literally just came out with a, a, a policy basically you know indicating that homeownership should be achieved at all costs like through this rent to own program right so i just i, I it, it's it's sad from my perspective like to, to really like think about the economy the way that it sits right now and that it's been rather than being used as a wealth building tool it's been, become this speculative retail trade for the past several years and i guess that's how you end up where we are today Woes, you've had your hand up for a bit. Um, jump in here. Uh, just tagging off what you just said. Everyone wants uh, instant gratification, you know. They want to get rich overnight. Let's buy a few houses here and there, buy a few stocks here and there, and they want 300% returns within months. And you know what? It actually worked for yeah, 20, no capital gains months. either, right? Exactly, and all the latecomers are the ones that held on or fucked pretty much right now. Uh, what I'm seeing right now is that a shit ton, I'm actually surprised, a shit ton of people are putting their properties for lease, thinking that uh, the market's going to come back in January, but we heard the same shit in March, April. Hold it for a couple of months, wait till September. I don't think anything's going to be pretty in September or October or November or December. Uh, Real life story, I was talking to somebody today, um, uh, a lady, condo in Guelph, 
she wanted to sell it and she got fucked with by the rate hikes. So now what she's going to do is she's going to lease out her condo in Guelph for six months and rent a condo in Mississauga and then try selling her property in six months and hoping that she has, uh, she, hoping she makes more than she paid for in early 2021. And I've, didn't really say much to her, but she's pretty much fucked. And she's not, she was supposed to retire next month and she's put that on hold. And you can imagine these situations are probably widespread. We just don't hear about them or we don't want to talk about them or we're in denial. So uh, like, how does that, how does that, like, something like, like, let's just use that as an example. Like, and let's, let's say, you know, that's a small, small percentage of the population, but like in a worst case scenario, how does that end? Right? Like, does that like do they eventually have to sell at the like to chase the market down like i don't i'm just i'm still having a hard time understanding exactly how this leads to like like how you know prices gradually like to me i understand the mechanics of the real estate market if you if i look at at, at trends like you know what what's happening with volume and how 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 quickly new real estate um listings are getting absorbed it's anticipate likely you know happen with a reasonable degree of certainty, but like when I hear about things like this and like, we're actually getting into almost like this counter cyclical event where a lot of this debt and is unwinding and people are, are chasing the price, like prices down. Like at what point does deleveraging start to become a bit of a race, right? Like where people are realizing that if they don't sell that they're, they're approaching, like, I guess, I guess it, it, it almost, it's like a suddenly and all, all then all at once kind of thing as, um, you know, as prices get lower and lower, you approach what you would call your personal bottom line. And I guess there's a lot of equity padding built in. So like, that's why it takes so long to, to reach the bottom, maybe on a, on a housing cycle. Like I just am, am really like actually genuinely trying to understand exactly how the mechanics of, of a decline work and what a bottom would look like necessarily. Cause you know, I mean, TikTok seems to think, to think, and I, and Jim, I, I see you here. So I want to get you on um, talking about what's going on on TikTok, but um, you know, TikTok seems to think that uh, that the bottom is like was yesterday, right? Like August. Um, so, Kevin, I see your hand up there. Um, I'll let you jump in, and then we'll we'll uh, jump over to Jim from uh, to give us a a pulse check on on the TikTokers who thought rates were going to come down. Yeah, I think I think this is a thing I can opine on a little bit. Um, yeah, where do I start with that? Um, hmm. You know, I think that, uh, yeah, I don't know how I want to go with that. Um, you know, having faced a situation where, well, uh, here's where I'll start. Um, many people think that real estate is a liquid asset, particularly in Toronto or in the big cities, right? You can always find a price for something. The question is, what's the price? Um, but it's actually a very illiquid uh, asset. When you consider all the transaction fees, you consider... Um, you know, like in your own particular case, you were talking about something being a hundred thousand wide on a property, uh, that you, that you were looking to sell or that you did sell. Um, where does it bottom? Well, I can tell you that we're nowhere near it, right? Two things really drive markets, um, confidence and liquidity. Liquidity is being withdrawn globally right now. This is why you're seeing a lot of situations where um, you talk about private letter lenders. It's not that the private lenders aren't there, that they don't have deep pockets. They're still waiting for the right price, right? So 
Um, liquidity, liquidity is changing. What hasn't, I don't think at this point, really changed to the extent that it needs to is confidence. And I think in part, again, it's because we've been in this cycle where asset prices have gone up and they've only really gone in one direction for an extended period of time. You know, um, particularly in real estate in Canada, uh, we really haven't seen anything that I would I would consider to be a substantial pullback since the 90s, which puts everybody under the age of 50 in a situation where they don't actually know what it is to be in an illiquid market. Um, and everybody's looking for this pivot. And I'm not saying that it's not going to come, but I think it's going to come at a time when something actually breaks. Because to be honest with you, you know, even though central banks employ an enormous number of PhD economists, even they don't really know where the breaking point is. You know, it wasn't that long ago that we were all talking about the fact that the economy couldn't handle interest rates past 1%. Where are we now? And you know what? I'm sitting here watching the S&P go to 40-40, and I'm asking myself, does that look like a market that's not confident? <laughs> you know, it's... Um, Bottoms come when there's despair, when people think that it's only ever going to go down. And this market still lives in a world, whether it's real estate, all assets, still live in a world where they think it's only going up. So are we anywhere near that bottom? We're not anywhere near it. So I don't know. I hope that that helps or at least that that inspires a question. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Go ahead, Arquette. Yeah, sorry. I'm just going to pipe it. I'm sorry. I don't know how to raise my hand on. I'm using my cell phone right now, and I don't have the normal button, so I apologize for that. All good, yeah. Um, um, but one, one facet I just want to bring up, um, which is pertinent to um, the gentleman who last spoke and yourself, Daniel, as well. You know, when you were asking, how does this end? Where does this, where does this end, and how does this break? Uh, one of the interesting dynamics that I know many or people are familiar with, but I'm not sure people are familiar, quite as familiar as to how endemic it is in the system, is um, exactly how people have acquired their homes. The almost almost everyone who comes into my office as a first-time home buyer and has come into my office as a first-time home buyer over the past five to eight years has parental signatures. Whereas once parentals used to give money, now they give their signature. And what that means as property values fall is that it's not one person who uh, is tapping everything they have. It's two or three people who are tapping everything they have, which means that they can probably hold on for that much longer um, as they experiencing the pain. Now, of course, this brings up huge family dynamic problems. And of course, you know, divorce lawyers are probably going to be making a fortune in these coming years. Uh, but uh, the reality is that people are not facing this crisis alone for the main, particularly those people who are most leveraged being first-time homebuyers and didn't have the benefit of real estate appreciation and just jumped into the market. They are instead in league with uh, people who have significant assets to ride out the storm, namely their parents, and as a result, uh, perhaps can weather it slightly better than when they alone were on title. I'm just, I'm just bringing that up because I don't know how it's going to play out or what it's going to do, but it certainly is an interesting dynamic given how massively systemic uh, multi-signature mortgages are. 
I, I think it's such a good point. And actually, I've, you know, I've, I've mentioned the cosine until you qualify kind of thing um, a lot in the past, but sort of forgot about it, you know, as, as the market started correcting. But it's a huge thing, right? And I think like something like 20, 25% of millennials transacted real estate since the beginning of, of the pandemic, which is, is just like a huge statistic, right? Like if you think about the, 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 the churn of the real estate market, it's something like 3% of housing stock. And baby boomers being, you know, like the actual biggest asset holders. Um, there's like this cross collateralizing between generations. You know, the baby boomers totally and their kids. It's. I agree with you. It's. It's like this. This weird mechanism. I don't. I don't necessarily know how that plays out. Especially understanding that boomers are the next major secular shift in Canadian housing. Right. Like the downsizing of baby boomers is going to completely control the market from from the next um you know two decades i would say right um oh. i have a, a couple of people so, sorry to interrupt you there mark um, i have a couple of people here on on, on speaker requests um for those of you who haven't sent me um dms if you can just dm me uh what you wanted to to ask just so i know that you're a real person um, and then i'll start accommodating some of these um we can kind of do a little bit of town hall before we wrap up here um and uh whoa yeah did you want to jump in i see your hand up there and i'm going to start getting some of these speakers in yeah, one last thing before I go. Uh, I'm very interested to see how the narrative changes now after yesterday uh, for all these housing bulls that have been buying the dip since April. But one thing I came across this afternoon, which was pretty hilarious, was uh, somebody sent me something-something. Uh, Agents are now saying that trigger rates is a nice thing because you can essentially have a loan that is interest only, which means the principal shrinks with inflation. Can you believe this shit? Please send that to me. Uh, I, I can. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, so I need to see this. I'll send it to you, Peter. But uh, yeah, this, that's pretty funny. I'm going to be really interested uh, over the next few days to see what the narrative is and how housing is so bullish for the next three months. So yeah, interesting times. Uh, thanks for the, letting me speak. And uh, yeah, continue the good work. And uh, last thing, Frankie, hey, I'm still here. See ya. Um, Nanaimo, did you want to jump in? I know you DM me with a question um, that you wanted to ask about the private lending space. Um, did you want to chime in yeah. there with that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Thanks, Daniel. I just want to say shout out to everybody for hosting this uh, and um, you know giving us all an opportunity to hear. I, I, it's definitely interesting times, and I appreciate the the comment about the speed of change because I think a lot of people haven't had time to adjust to how quickly rates have changed. And I'm quite curious the take on how this will affect private lenders should, because I know it's a big space out there. I've got friends that are doing it. And and um, how will this affect the market if we see a real drop? Like, like how many of these guys are going to be caught? You know, are they going to be holding a bag? Are they so well secured? They're just like, it doesn't really matter. Or is this the kind of, is this, because I don't, I think the banks will be fine. I'm, I'm thinking the private lending people are the ones that are going to get hurt. And then possibly that would be the, you know, what would result in some type of capitulation as they just don't have a choice, but take stuff and dump it or force the dumps to happen. I'd be curious your take on that. Yeah. I mean, the challenge is like the, the, it's, it takes a lot. The, the mechanics of a private taking somebody power of sale aren't, aren't especially like I don't, there's no necessary like dump per se. And we got Daniel Viner here, so I might just maybe let him chime in. But like the, you know, you got to think about the different brackets in which 
private lenders are, right? So there's guys who do, you know, there's like your 50% private lenders who, you know, now maybe as a result of prices coming down are at a 70% loan to value position, right? Then there's guys who are doing 80, up to 80% or they're doing in second position, you know, like behind a, a 70% loan to value, they're doing a 10% piece, um, up to 80%. And maybe they're getting closer to that, like 100% loan to value as prices have come down 20%. But, you know, like, and so, so there's a risk there that they get wiped out if, if that borrower stops paying and they do have to take them power of sale, right? Um, but the, the borrower is not going to sell and, like, not pay out the mortgage on their own, right? So it, it takes a long time for these things to actually materialize. And the other thing is, like, by the time a, a first would go power of sale, which, it, you know, is mechanically, I think, maybe, I guess, the more likely situation, the second has probably been in arrears for a significantly long period of time, right? Because everybody does try and pay their, you know, the, their their Schedule A uh, bank, right? Their Schedule One um, Charter Canadian Bank. Um, Daniel, did you want to chime in here a little bit on on sort of like the mechanics of what you know a worst case scenario would look like for for privates kind of getting wiped out, and and if there's actual real material risk of that happening in the market right now? Sure. Thanks for the opportunity. I think I think like you mentioned, it really depends on the leverage uh, these individual, whether it's individual investor, whether it's a mortgage investment corporation, really depends on quote unquote the loan to value that they funded. More specifically, at what point? Um, so, in other words, at the very top of the market, a lender lending a quote unquote eighty percent loan to value could very well be finding themselves without the key, but purchase the property, so to speak, and then. These are typically six to 12 month terms, assuming we're speaking about a first mortgage here. You know, again, if you're at if you're at 100 percent LTV in theory on an updated appraisal, which we all see, we see on House Sigma, we hear what's going on. We see what's going on out there, whether you're in the mortgage space or you're next to the mortgage space. So the reality is, you know, it's also, quote unquote, the exit. So, I mean, obviously, the borrowers want to know that they have an exit strategy to eventually convert back to a traditional loan. But. I mean, for the years, uh, five, six, seven, eight years before today, when values were always going up more or less, you know, an 80% loan to value became a 75, became a 70. Um, borrowers never really thought twice. There was always a second kick at the can, even for lenders. So the time has changed where, you know, uh, there's a handful of lenders we know that even last year said, hey, like, this, this game will not continue to go on. We need to kind of be proactive. We need to take measure. We need to stop lending so aggressively. But there's more lenders that really hope the music wouldn't have stopped. We see them. We see in the news that there's, uh, without getting into names, there's lenders that have just frozen funding new applications altogether. There's a few different, it gets, I mean, there's a few different levels to this as well. I mean, one, one of these lenders were writing loans that, 399 499 face rates so contract rates to borrowers and i'm sitting here saying how does this even make sense like it didn't even make sense a year ago so what are we seeing now they're they're non-renewing so i mean obviously you know if gic's are in the fives where are their investors like how are these loans being funded they're not they're all they're all calling non-renewals and what does this mean and i'm going to get swing back to the point daniel but what does this mean now to the borrower who believed that they were in some sort of comfort zone at a 499 rate when now the current you know private rates are back to 789 so these borrowers payments even on an interest only basis are at the least doubling they're also getting hit with 
um, you know, renewal fees. So they'll sit back and say, hey, let me get out of this. Let me call a broker. Let me try to get back to a bank. They're not able to get to a bank, nine out of 10 of them. And they try to find another lender or private mortgage replacement. And it's the same old story. You know, they might be at an 8% rate. So they might hear of another lender that will give them a 7% rate, but there's two points in fees and they're back in the same issue. And to make that even, you know, to make matters even worse, good luck appraising. So again, if they funded a loan at 80% or 75 last year and they're looking to replace it on a new value, they're, they're 75, 80, 85. So closer back to the question, you know, what happens now with these private lenders? So as you said, it's not an overnight process to start enforcing a mortgage. So in my view, at least, and knock on wood, we're not in this situation with any loans, you know, we fund internally. Um, the question really becomes, what do you do? So if you wrote a 75 or 80% loan to value and you know that you're probably at the very least 80% right now, what good is subjecting, you know, what good is enforcing right now? I mean, like you're going to be putting the house on the market. You could be sitting there. You might not even be getting, you know, any offers much. So I guess to wind this point down, some of these lenders might be better off entering into some sort of forbearance with the board, at least the ones that are making their payment ride this out wherever this goes and whatever that means. But the power of sale might not really be the answer. If you're at a 50, 65% loan to value and you're thinking of going power of sale, there's still lenders doing up to 75, the odd going up to 80. So it really, really boils down to the leverage. And another point too, if, you know, if these lenders are doing second mortgages, which, you know, before the change in the market, lenders were really comfortably doing, not really ourselves, but 75, 80, 85%. And these lenders are typically lending behind institutional first mortgages with, we all know the rates were, you know, two, three, three and a half percent, but now they're behind rates of four, five, six, six and a half, A, B lend. I'm pointing as a second mortgage lender. I lost you. Oh, hi, sorry. Sorry, my phone timed out on the app. Do you hear me? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, so just, yeah, just to yeah, wind this whole rant down, but it gets a little more trickier if you're a second mortgage lender. If you're behind, you know, you initially were behind a rate of two, three percent. You're now behind a rate of four, five, six. If you receive notice that the first mortgage is now in default, you need to, you know, if you have the capital wherewithal, it might be prudent to start making payments, protective advances to keep the first mortgage up to date to prevent them from going into legals. It's not easy times. It really boils down to leverage, and there there will be losses out there. There's no question. So it just comes down to writing writing good loans. Thanks, Daniel. Great insight. Um, is there any evidence of of um, you know these rate increases changing the the supply side of of capital? Like you know, people talking about HELOCs, people lending out HELOCs. Uh, you know, if, if you see a lender coming up for renewal. And they're now saying, uh, you know, my spread was at, you know, at my, if I was borrowing at 3% on my HELOC and, and I was lending out at 10, you know, it was compelling. And there was, there was very little risk. The market was going up 10% a year or whatever. Now, all of a sudden, you know, the spread's down to whatever, uh, 4%, let's say, if they're at 10 plus a 1% lender fee or whatever. Um, are they just like, I, I'm not renewing? And, and now is there almost like this this tertiary market that's forming where, you know, people are rescuing from the rescue loan kind of thing because those like those deals don't have the equity at where they can go to a big six and, and top up no and, like exactly and, and and these 
you know, these private lenders, I mean, the reality just is they're, they're doing this to make, you know, to make a return. They're, they're not doing this out of the kindness of their heart. I mean, that's just the reality of it. If anyone says anything, I mean, it's a business, right? I mean, private lending is, is a business and they're providing a service. So no, I mean, every, every lender we know of, whether it's, you know, just their own cash, whether it's they're operating off a line of credit facility, if the, if the, if the cost of their capital is increasing, they're going to want, you know, they're going to want to maintain that spread at the least. They might now say, Hey, the market, the environment's more risky than it was, it was a year ago. If I was yielding three, four points, I want more now. And and you know what? And if the client's not prepared to renew, I'll get my money back. Hopefully, if you're not, you know, at an 80, 85% loan to value where there isn't a second kick at the can, there isn't another lender behind you willing or able to pay you out. So again, it just, it always comes back to writing a good loan. And what does that mean in my view? the right loan to value. What does a value mean? Well, you know, anybody can put together an appraisal. You gotta really, really, really not be scared to come up with your own internal value. You should be questioning the values. An appraisal is a stack of paper a mentor taught me. You gotta really, really know what you're lending on, how quick you can get out. And if there's, you know, you just don't wanna be the last kick at the can. And this isn't, this isn't against the bore where they're a human being, they're a homeowner, they're in a bind. It's just the reality. The borrower doesn't want to get stuck in a in a in a in a high rate short term product, and the lender also wants to get their money back out at the same time. So I'm speaking, you know, to both parties. Yeah, fair enough. On the appraisal note, you know, like I was um, an AACI candidate for the commercial appraisal side, and there was always this joke that uh, AACI stood for appraise according to client's instructions. So I would certainly take. Uh, all of that with a with a grain of salt um, in that in that space, like, and I think that I, I'm interested to see how all of that takes shape. Um, so I really appreciate the insight, Daniel. It's uh, thank it you so much. A lot of value in the conversation. Yeah, um, thank you, Darren. Anybody else want to jump in here before we, you know, just start the process of, of wrapping up? I think we've heard a lot of, of sort of how these rate hikes are, are material on existing homeowners, on home buyers, on private lenders, on pre-construction. Um, we know Kevin's given us some great insight on the macro side as well as uh, woes and deer point. Um, Jim, did you want to jump in? I saw you know you're you're here um, and you're you're super in touch with what's going on in the TikTok space. You and I did a live there. I think I guess that was yesterday. Um, and TikTok, I guess until until 10 a.m. yesterday, thought uh, on the aggregate that that rate hikes were were over and rates were potentially getting cut. Um, I know Bridget, who's on here as a, as a listener, had, had people like literally arguing with her that that rates were gonna gonna come come down. So I, I'm just curious, like, what what does the sentiment seem to be like in, you know, in the in the bullpen, let's call it, of of, of TikTok? Um, if you're there, Jim. Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for having me. Yeah, TikTok, I don't I don't take too much seriously because uh, as Bridget could probably even tell you that I think some people just troll TikTok just to troll TikTok and um, they just throw things out there because they're trying to get a reaction. So, uh, you know, when you just when you say whatever you need to say and even if you show data and you have evidence and stuff like that, people will just sort of come out with left field and say things that will just sort of um, get you going, I guess, or get other viewers going. I, I've seen gigantic, you know, um, arguments over the comments. Like they're just going back and forth on my comments forever. And I'm just like, well, I have fun. I'm going to bed, you know, that kind of stuff. So, and, um, but I think there might be actually a small subset of people who actually believe or still cling to the belief that 
the Bank of Canada and the Fed is going to back off despite what they've said. So I don't, I'm not sure where that came from or where that's coming from, but I, I'm pretty sure you guys must have noticed it too. Like some people just believe that, okay, this is going to be it, you know, September's the, the end, and then we're just going to go right back down to like zero rates. So I don't know where that's coming from, to be honest with you. So uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I'm curious as well. Peter, Peter shed some light. Conditioning. It's um, it's probably coming. Well, maybe condition was coming from that. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I just got a message from here. It's coming right? from the CIBC thing, but it's also it's also coming from um, as Deer points out the bond market. Eventually, they're saying like right now you're going to end up seeing the Bank of Canada and the bond market going for the most part the opposite direction, right? Like uh, you could probably get a, a variable now depending on what the discount is on Prime. At probably the same at the same rate as a uh, as a fixed, so you know that's what's uh, you know guy, guys who see things further out and look at you know not lagging indicators but leading ones are probably saying that eventually they will. But based on what they're saying, like again, uh, unless anything changes, and they're not going to do another one for another what five or six weeks, so they'll get two more inflation prints from there. But you know, they in their policy statement they said they'll do whatever it takes, blah blah blah, to get to two percent. I forgot what else. And their other concern was that core inflation went from five to five and a half and actually went up. So unless anything, you know, really bad happens that deer is forecasting, then um, you know we'll we'll probably see another rate hike ne next month. Yeah, for sure. Like, I think also, you know, the FOMC, like, target rate probabilities for the 21st meeting coming up are, like, at, like, 87%, um, 300 to 325 bips, right? Which basically is, I think that's the 75 to 100 range, if I'm not mistaken. Which, yeah, they'll like, do 75. I mean, yeah. So, if it, well, and if they go on the high end, like, I mean, we're, you know, the, the Canadian dollar was was, was trending down at, at heading into this, this rate hike announcement. And so I think that, like... You know, we've talked about this a couple of times on this space, but like, is there a degree of um, necessity to protect the Canadian dollar so that we don't end up with inflation, right? Like where, you know, the settlement currency being the U.S. dollar, if it's significantly stronger than, than and we're buying all of these goods, then, you know, you don't really necessarily get control of, of the inflation um, if if we're gradually getting weaker against the USD, right? And, and the U.S., you know, needing to protect reserve currency status. I mean, this, these were the conversations we're having at the beginning of this whole thing, right? Um, and, uh, I see deer requesting again, so I'm really excited for his in, in, insight here, but, um, but that, that's sort of my thought, thought process around the whole thing. Um, Gina, you've had your hand up if you want to jump in and then we'll get to, to woes and, uh, yeah. I'll add deer here. I just wanted to make a point to, uh, Jim intelligence and uh, professionalism is not a requirement to have uh, a TikTok account and create content. So I'd like to thank. Bridget and Vass is on here, I think, and um, Jim for being on there uh, with me and uh, trying to educate some people that want to be educated because the shit that I hear on a daily basis literally drives me to want to drink again. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, I think it's funny, like, I would agree with Jim, probably the troll uh component is is a big thing too like it's so easy to set up an account like twitter as well like i like that because it kind of makes like the conversations organic right like people aren't necessarily like anybody will say anything when they're anonymous so it is it is funny it's certainly a funny platform but uh woes uh you want to jump in here and then we'll get to here and then we'll try and wrap up 
You trying to insult me? <laughs> no, never would I ever. <laughs> uh, what the hell? I know getting? better. I was gonna go, but uh, I could stay. What the hell was I gonna say? Damn. No cup of tea over here, man. Oh, I was gonna say. I was gonna say. So, what are you guys advising your clients now? Like, pretty much all you guys were wrong for the last twelve months. What are you guys saying now? I mean, my advice hasn't really changed, to be honest with you. Um, like, my advice would be that if you can find a transaction that makes sense and fits your investment criteria, um, then it's probably worth doing. And if, if you know, if you're a, uh, not an investor, if you're a, an end user um, and your, your goal is to try and find a home, um, you know, be extremely aware of downside risk. I think I'm probably annoying in how much I talk about downside risk. And so I, don't, I didn't paper a buy side deal until like, I don't know, a couple of couple of weeks ago this year, right? It was all all sell side, um, like because I just couldn't, like, I just didn't like in my 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 thesis wasn't that re buying real estate was a good idea, and so my clients necessarily weren't buyers at that point. Um, but my advice doesn't change. Like, I think that some of the best deals that I've seen papered it were done in the past couple of weeks, and that's not to say that it's bullish per se. But when there is distress, like. August was a, a shitty, scary month, and there were deals there to uh, into the market on, on multifamily in some fringe areas that came down really, really hard, like thirty percent uh, territory minus thirty percent territory markets, and you know they're they're this is price floor product, right? Um, it's and it's rental price floor rental product, um, but they're they're basically starting the trying to cover several years worth of ground that they they were pens down right they weren't purchasing property and so you know they're, they're trying to make up and and they're buying it starting the process of buying i shouldn't say buying but starting the process of buying relatively aggressively like people are, are out there looking for deals and I, I think investors this is the important part of the about the market right now from my perspective it is that you know there's no such thing as timing the market in in real estate especially um but if you you know, you need to look at hundreds of deals to find a good one. And you couldn't do that for the past two years, right? You, you basically, your only options were spend 15 minutes showing the COVID protocol in no conditions and hope you get it and hope that it doesn't have any major structural defects when you close and hope that your lender, hope that it appraises and hope that your lender still likes you by the time you have to close. Now, all of a sudden, you know, there's, there's supply, there's properties that are sitting on the market, absorption slowed. So you have the luxury of shopping around. It's, I mean, not statistically a buyer's market in a lot of markets, but it's functionally a buyer's market. It's practically a buyer's market. So start exercising the, you know, the things that like just buy well. And, and my advice for people in, in February would have been the same. Buy well, try and get a financing condition, try and get an inspection condition. If you couldn't do that back then, then maybe it's not the best time to buy. Now you can do that. So, you know, if you're, if you're waiting on the sidelines, maybe you can buy, right? Um, that's my that's my two cents. Um, I, I'd be curious to hear what what a lot of the other realtors are saying. Um, dear, you had your hand up here. Do you want to jump in? Dear, he's on a phone call. Is he? Fair enough. Uh, Gina, Peter, do you guys want to field that question? Um, that that was uh, what was asked. I know about people. So I have, uh, like you, I haven't penned a buyer deal actually this entire year. 
Um, I've done listings. I've, I've done sales on that side and I've always been very cautious. So if, again, if I wasn't willing to buy right now, I, I haven't uh, recommended to my buyers that they buy, but they are ready. So that's what we're waiting for. Hey, I just have a follow-up. I have a follow-up question for Mark. Yeah, go ahead. Mark, there? Yeah, I'm here. Hey, um, a couple of months ago, uh, I like your, sh uh, I like your uh, content, by the way, but a couple of months ago, you had uh, floated the idea of five-year mortgages at 7%, and everyone pretty much laughed at you. And I noticed that you asked Ron again earlier today, what made you come up with that number months ago? What's your rationale? Um, I, I, you know what, I, I, again, for part of it is being flippant and try, trying to make a reputation online. So uh, let me, let me just be very, let me be very honest about that. But, uh, I mean, to, to the amount of money that was floating around in the system, I've been doing this now for 20, 25 years. And, and, and truthfully, the amount of money that was floating around and sloshing around in the system and ending up in people's pockets who ordinarily would never have experienced that money and watching people who who had sixty thousand dollar a year jobs taking home two hundred thousand dollars for signing simple contracts something was seriously askew um to a point where if interest rates are the only cure available well we'd have to take some serious medicine for that cure i still hold to my seven percent um prognosis for a five-year fixed term I think that's probably uh, where we are. I, I don't mean to scare people, but I, I kind of have thought that for the better part of six months at this point. Yeah, uh, you pretty much brought it up when it was at 3% and everyone was like, we're not even going to hit 4 So it's yeah. pretty interesting when you said it, and I remember everybody came <laughs> after. Yeah, um, and, and, and again, I think it was just because I have been amazed at the the amount of money and then watching the monetary creation that took place during COVID. Look, this isn't a polemic against governments. Governments did what they did in uncertain times and who knew whether they were right or wrong to do it and where we would be if they didn't. But one thing that the governments worldwide did was they pumped money into the system in a way that I don't think that we have ever seen in our lifetime, perhaps after World War II. <clears throat> um, um, maybe, but you know, uh, but there really hasn't been an equivalent experiment for some time. And 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 when you see that much money sloshing around, and when you see the effects uh, just hitting people who never would have seen this money in their in their life uh, for doing nothing, uh, for for signing simple contracts and just hanging on, um, you know, you you realize that the cure has to be significant. And I didn't feel that the interest rates that people were calling one percent, two percent, were anything close to a significant uh, reckoning. Um, I think seven percent is that significant reckoning. And so I said it partially for shock value, but partially because I, I really did believe we were going there. Um, and you know, we're now, I guess, one and a half points away from that reality. And hopefully, I guess, uh, it will stop where where I had. Uh, I had projected and not go beyond that. I think the rate, it, the rate conversation is kind of interesting too, because like a lot, like a lot, there's this conversation that, you know, and among realtors that investors are going to floor the market. Right. And I, I would agree to some respect, but I think that people are, are anticipating the floor being a lot earlier than, than where it is. But I think the funny part 
is that you know most of the investors like scale investors that i'm working with aren't borrowing from a lenders anyways right so like the competitive advantage of being an investor now all of a sudden actually starts to materialize because everyone else is borrowing at the same rates that you already were right and so deals as they come down in price and rents start to to incline or, or increase you know like cap rates are getting more and more compelling um as an investor who's borrowing b side primarily um you know the the deals are, are getting better against your competitor on a daily basis um i uh i personally don't have much more to add for the, this conversation um, i'm not sure if anybody else wants to to say anything before we wrap up we lost deer so i will uh i'll try and get him in the thread maybe to, to summarize what he was going to mention but is there anything else anybody wants to add uh before we wrap up here gonna take that as a no um thank you all it was a great show uh, really appreciate all the insight. I feel like we covered a lot of ground here um, and got like practical applications of, of rate hikes rather than just like high level macro, um, which is cool. Um, this was a really good conversation. I'm looking forward to another one next week. Um, I'll get the recording up on this as soon as I possibly can. And uh, I look forward to seeing you all again next Thursday. I'm, I'm enjoying this night time slot. Seems like we have a lot more people. Um, so thank you all for being here. Feel free to suggest topics in the thread. I'm sure somebody will put one out um, after. And uh, just happy to, to get a discussion going about what we're going to talk about next week. Thanks again. Have a good weekend.